Hey, you. Thank you so very much for buying me a cup of coffee. Woo. Thank you. And I wanted to say that I really appreciate it. I'm trying to expand out of the box with Christine to help entrepreneurs and socially conscious folk get their message out to the world, whatever their passion is, whatever their expertise or their business. And so through the shows, I'm hoping to inspire people to get up off of their butts and get out there. So thank you so very much. With this, we want to grow and grow and get more people into podcasting. We want to train more people into vodcasting, which is the video podcasting element. And I just really appreciate your support so very much. And because of your generosity, I want you to know that if you leave your name so that I can identify you, I will thank you on a future episode of Out of the Box with Christine. I'll give you a big shout out, okay? Thank you so very much. And I'll go enjoy that coffee right now. Welcome to Out of the Box with Christine, the podcast for conscious entrepreneurs. Are you willing to step into your greatness? Are you ready to shine? Well, get ready, truth seeker. You're in for an amazing ride. And now, here's the host of the show, Christine Blasden. Hello, my out of the boxers. Welcome back to Out of the Box with Christine. I'm your host, Christine Blasdale. And today we're going to have some fun. We're going to be talking about some comedy. We're going to be talking also about following your passion and the importance of listening to that heart inside of you and following your your dreams, your passion, no matter what. Uh, But today my guest is Art Bell, who is the uh, original founder, actually, of Comedy Central and author of Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. And <laughs> I, first of all, congratulations on your on the book and the title, because I, oh, thanks, I totally Christine. got it. <laughs> I love thanks. It. I'm glad you like it. Um, and thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the podcast, the idea is for conscious entrepreneurs, for people who are creating their own business, who are writing their own books, who are creating their own podcasts, their, their video channels, uh, maybe becoming coaches and consultants, and the importance about listening to that little voice. And um, I just, I wanted to jump right in to, to talk to you and say, have you always been funny? Have you always, <laughs> have you, when you were a little kid, were you the funny one? And did that funny little sense of humor get you in trouble? And I already know the answer to that, but I'm just setting you up with a good question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought I was kind of funny as a kid and I did get in trouble a lot, got thrown out of class and all that stuff. But more than that, I was um, from a very early age, I was a comedy nerd. I discovered comedians on the Ed Sullivan show, which was a weekly variety show uh, on Sundays. Yeah. So those of you who I remember- watched it. Yeah. yeah, no kidding. And I was eight years old and I couldn't watch Johnny Carson, which was the only other place you can see comedians. So I saw, for example, Richard Pryor in his first appearance on the Ed Sullivan show. He was like 20 years old. He was so funny. He was fantastic. And I was sitting there and my father was laughing hysterically. And, you know, the audience in the Ed Sullivan theater was laughing hysterically. And I thought, and there's also 30 million people watching this show that, who are laughing hysterically at this one guy who's just telling a story. And I thought, man, I want to get better at that. I want to know how that works. And from then on, I was just kind of hooked on comedy. Oh, I remember, I mean, as a kid, uh, when I was really young, I remember the Ed Sullivan show. And I, I, I only, I remember this, um, this one moment when <laughs> I had a little black and white TV as we all did. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it was, um, it was, it was the door is Jim Morrison of the doors. And he was on this TV screen. Ed Sullivan would just bring the, like the, the most amazing talent into your living oh, yeah, room. Right? And I remember like being four and telling my mom, like looking at it and telling my mom, I was like, he's sexy mom. I didn't know what sexy was. I just thought Jim Morrison was sexy, but that was like those little moments from, from television, from the glory days of, of television. It was the glory days. It was the glory days. And then also growing up, I don't know about you, but um, the one thing that I could stay up late to watch was Saturday night live. 
Saturday Night Live, man, talk about a great comedy brand, you know, Absolutely. a great comedy entity. You know, when we started comedy, you know, when we started Comedy Channel and Comedy Central, that was like the only comedy thing in America. National Lampoon, which was the other one I loved, um, had kind of gone out of business. I mean, you know, they, they, they were around, but, you know, their heyday was way over. So it was really Saturday Night Live who was setting the standard for good comedy in America. And certainly we got Saturday Night Live onto Comedy Central as soon as we could because we loved the show. And it was, you know, when we started, it was huge. It was bigger than us by a long shot. So that's how I was introduced to uh, George Carlin, to Steve Martin. I See, mean, you know, I, that's, I had a different story. I guess I'm a bit older than you. I look older than you. That's for sure. Midge, come on. <laughs> well, at least you knew who Ed Sullivan was. I mean, that's, that's a, yes. definitely a step in the right direction. Yes. Um, when I was a kid uh, and when I'm talking about fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, you know, and I'm still into comedy. That's when the comedy albums started to become you know, billion sellers, starting with Bill Cosby, you should pardon the expression. And, and who was, you know, that was, he had, you know, he had so, so many comedy albums and George Carlin had the world's greatest comedy album. We played the Carlin album in my house. I have two younger brothers. We played that over and over to the point where we started talking like George Carlin. And my mother was like, what is with you guys? You know, why are you talking like that? But but that's how much we love those albums. That's how we learned about comedy. Robert I Klein. Felt, I felt you know? when I would when I would listen when I would listen to George Carlin, there was that little voice inside of me going, "Yeah, he's got it." Like, yeah, you know, his perspective on this is just is true, is right. Um, and it was the, the rebel. There was a little bit of a, of a rebel feel about, you know, listening. I was, oh, I'm listening to George Carlin. You know, it was kind of like a little sneaky thing. Um, but there's there was the 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 beginning, the heyday, right, of bringing comedy to television and into people's living rooms. This was a time, too, in the, you know, the early, early days uh, with Ed Sullivan and also with um, the, the variety shows like, you know, laugh in and things like that, where it was mother's brothers comedy hour, it's mother's brothers comedy hour. This was when whole families were together. Cause I, I remember just, you know, watching television. It wasn't an, a, a solo sport. It was, you know, everybody every, after, after dinner, everybody had to sit around in the, the, the <laughs> TV lounge, the TV room and, and watch these. And yep, um, that's right. And so there had to be an appeal as well to a, to a, a wide demographic as well, you know? Well, not only that, but you remember in those days, and this is when I started in television in the mid-80s, there were three networks. And I, it was yes. possible. I mean, you know, we won't even go into how many people watched I Love Lucy have her baby on TV. I think it was like 60 million households or something. But, you know, on any given night, 20 million, 30 million people were watching the same show. Like everybody watched the Ed Sullivan show. You go to work the next day, and I didn't work in those days, but you know, you go to work the next day, and people are talking about it. Hey, just say, yeah, of course I saw. It. Of course, you know, what, what'd you think? You know, that when cable came in, I was, I guess, part of the problem. You know, the audience really fragmented. The audience really fragmented to the point where, you know, you couldn't really collect twenty or thirty million people f- for a show, unless it was. Well, I, I don't think it's been done lately. You and know. then you and then you have some iconic shows too that were um, labeled, you know, comedy sitcoms, but they crossed that barrier into, um, you know, civil rights issues and uh, and uh, gender equality and oh, like uh, homophobia and things like that yeah. that were going on. Like with All in the Family, I remember um, a couple episodes going, "Wait, there, what's you know, this is serious? What they're talking about? <laughs> like, wait." You, you know, you, you can't have, uh, what was her name? Edith. You can't have Edith, you know, being sexually assaulted or, you know, die. Um, but they were broaching like real life situations that, 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 that the country was dealing with as well. Um, in particular, well, you know, you're, you're, you're onto something that I, I like to talk about. So I'll mention it now. And that is comedy is a great communication tool. I mean, I, I know a lot of your audience or entrepreneurs are looking to start businesses and everything else, you know, Comedy is like humor. 
greases the wheels of business. I mean, it really does. And the people who, who really don't operate with a sense of humor are at a disadvantage, you know, because it, it's just, it's just, it, it greases the wheels, but that's in real life. Now, when you talk about a show like All in the Family, they were taking on serious subjects and there were several shows after that that did too. Um, but with a comedy, you know, they, they, with an overlay of comedy. So people actually listen to it. Who wouldn't otherwise listen to a lecture on, you know, what it's like to be a woman and be sexually assaulted. So comedy brought so much understanding to the world, I think, through, through those shows and also through, you know, comedians. And we can name some of the comedians who were breakthrough women, female women's comedian, women comedians who really brought the women's experience um, to America through a comic lens. And it made, you know, it made a lot more sense that way. Well, a perfect example and someone that I've worked with, I actually I produced her a radio show for Roseanne Barr uh, several years ago. And by the way, if I can produce Roseanne Barr, I can do anything. <laughs> okay. I admire you from what I know of the situation. <laughs> yes, yes. Extremely talented human being. Like, like every single bone in her body is funny. Do you know what I'm saying? She's a genius. Um, she's also got like five or six uh, uh, signs in, in Scorpio, which it, that's that's how we connected too, because I got five planets in Scorpio and we're like, oh my God, you're Scorpio. Oh, the brain, brain, brain. Um, but her, the whole Roseanne show, well, the whole stand-up career that she had before even the Roseanne show mm-hmm. and this idea of a bit of a self-deprecating kind of character, but really like saying it how how it is and it wasn't about being, you know, um, this, you know, this pretty, you know, beautiful little package. It was raw and she connected with millions and millions of women who were like her, who were in that same situation in life. Um, you know, and then she became, you know, famous and a star and, you know, and all of that. But um, the, the power of Roseanne and the Roseanne show, and then also like you were, you know, Ellen DeGeneres as well. Um, I remember, do you remember that time, that moment in history of in human history when it was, we knew that she was going to be coming out on the show and there all hell was breaking loose. Advertisers were threatening to pull um, bomb threats. There were bomb threats uh, on the soundstage at, at the Ellen show, uh, her personal security. I mean, it was like the world was going to end just because Ellen was going to come out as being gay on the show. Do you remember that moment in time? I, I felt like I was I remember the at- moment. I, I, and I, I vaguely remember some of what you're talking about. I don't remember the bomb threat so much, but you know, the advertisers pulling out, that was a big deal. Um, uh, I, I guess being bombed is worse, but, <laughs> but you know, when you're in the business, you think, Oh man, we'll take the bombing, but please Procter and Gamble don't leave. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, Ellen, that was, that was, um, but there's so many shows you can, you can, you can cite now that were breakthrough shows that really made the network sweat. And that, you know, you, you talk about, I I said cable fragmented the audience, but the other thing that cable brought that the networks really never got to effectively was getting over this whole, we we're beholden to advertisers. We have to throw out a wide net. You can't say the, any word, you can't say that you know, anything. You can't say bad words. You can't talk about abortions or, I mean, they did eventually a little bit, but on the whole, if you wanted to see Robin Williams perform the way he really performed in a club, uncut, uncensored, he went to HBO. That was the only game in town when they showed up. And I was working at HBO in those days. And, you know, that was a, that was a breakthrough in television. The fact that you could put basically anything you wanted, any movie you wanted, any performer, any anything went on HBO, and that was part of its appeal. Um, and it really and HBO was the only game the in town there for for a bit as well. What wasn't it? Yeah, <clears throat> it, it's true. HBO they were around since like seventy six yeah. when they went up on the satellite in seventy eight. Uh, but in the early 80s, you know, when they were really starting to rocket ahead, you also had A&E coming up, ESPN showed up. I mean, it was just at the time when some of these, these channels these uh, were starting to show up. They were 
there to take chances because what else could they do? Plus, of course, they weren't um, regulated by the uh, by the FCC, which the networks were. Right. That's the other reason they get away with doing anything they wanted. But that was a very important breakthrough. And that was why HBO became the place for comedy on TV as quickly as it did. Because they had that freedom. And sure. and anybody that knows, you know, stand-up uh, comedy, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, or even uh, skit comedy, but especially with stand-up comedy, that um, there's it's 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 going to offend someone. I mean, it can not not everybody, but something that's going to be said could possibly offend someone. And when you have that platform to be able to be you know as creative as possible, um, then that gives you a, a whole lot of freedom, and then that has a huge huge value for the audience because they're actually seeing somebody at their craft, right? They're seeing that's Chris right. Rock, um, not 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 PG, uh, you know, but able to really just let it, let it go and, and, and be who he is and his greatness as well. Right. Right. Lately, there's been a little, you know, pushback against that, as you know, Yes, which scares me to death. I mean, um, a friend of mine, Vinny Favalli and I did a podcast series, a short series about 20 episodes um, also called constant comedy where we interviewed people from the early days of Comedy Channel, because it was the 30th anniversary last year of Comedy Central. And the single biggest thing that came up, especially among the stand-up comics, was we are scared to death about what's going to happen to stand-up comedy if audiences keep standing up saying that's offensive, you can't talk about that, and walking out of the room before you even finish saying anything. Um, All I can say is I hope it swings back, because... You know, some some comedians are really getting to the point where they're afraid of working, working live. Right. And because of the scrutiny that they have and 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 the media, you know, it's we the uh, there's a weird dance that we have that society has in general with people that we hold up high. And a lot of times we like to see them fall. Um, you know, what do they say? If it bleeds, it leads type type thing, right? It's, it's, you sell more papers or not. That's an old allergy analogy, but you, you get more views, um, when it's a negative story instead of something that's, you know, a a positive story. We know that, you know, as, as we do, but let's talk about the history because we just talked about the whole history sort of, 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 uh, of comedy in television. And really, I mean, creating a whole channel based on comedy um, at the time probably too was a, was a bit risky because it had never, you know, it hadn't been done before, but um, can you want to talk about the origin of, well, comedy yeah, um, but before that was called the comedy channel, which makes, is, makes good when we sense. started it. Yeah. When, when we started it, we named it the comedy channel. Cause like, what else do you call a comedy channel? And in those days, you know, everybody was naming it like, you know, ESPN was really uh, the entertainment and sports network. So they were naming themselves what they were, arts and entertainment network. So Comedy Channel was easy. I I started this out by saying I was a comedy nerd, and that lasted right through college. I mean, I was just fascinated with comedy. When I got to college, I was hanging out with guys who um, were really funny and who went on, some of them went on to be great comedy writers and producers, including the producers of Ellen. Uh, Neil Warren's and Carol Black um, and uh, a friend of mine, Mike Whitehorn, who did uh, King of Queens. You know, these guys were really funny and we had so much fun together. And just before we graduated, Mike said to me, um, hey, a bunch of us are going out to L.A. We're going to be writers. And I said, never happened. (laughs) You know, because my parents used to tell me, like, either you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, an accountant, or you're a failure, you know, and there was no way you could make a living in the entertainment business. That just wasn't done. And really, they had, they had made me believe it was impossible. And my friend said, No, we're going to go out there, we'll get jobs as whatever. And then we'll become writers. And of course, they did. I became an economist. That was my major in college. I got a job out of college at a, as an economist in a consulting firm in Washington. I worked my butt off. And people say, oh, man, you love comedy. You went into economics. But I had a great time as an economist, I got to tell you. I was working with the smartest people I've ever worked with. And I was at my all-time smartest in those days. I was like 25 years old. 
it's been downhill since then, let me tell you. But I was really smart, solving tough problems and stuff. But at the end of the day, I guess I was there for a few years and I just, I didn't want to be an economist for my entire life. And so I decided to do something I call changing the channel, which I've done several times in my life, which is like, okay, let's just change everything. Let's just do something unexpected. And maybe this doesn't sound like a big deal, but for me, it was going back to school. So I went to graduate school in business thinking, okay, I'm going to come out and I'm going to get a job in television or in film. Um, turns out I didn't have to go to business school to do that, but nobody told me at the time. Um, but I got involved some, with something there because I asked, like, wh- where do the creative kids hang out? And they said, well, they do this thing called the Follies, which is a, you know, a musical comedy satiric, satirical review. And I went down there to the meeting and there were people who had been on Broadway. There were people, you know, professional choreographers, dancers. These people were all now in business school trying to get to Wall Street. And I was trying to go the other way, you know, get into the entertainment business. Anyway, we had a great time putting on those shows. They were really professional. Second year, I was the head writer for the show. And it reminded me how much I loved comedy because I wrote the comedy. I was, I'd written comedy before, you know, in high school and college. I loved writing sketch comedy. And that was kind of when I decided, you know, how come if I want to get a job out there in television land, how come there's no comedy network? Because that's that's kind of like where I'd really like to work is an all comedy network. I mean, I really loved comedy. I wasn't a comedian. Let's you know, let's get that that straight. Right. I was not. I never saw myself as a performer. I did some when I was in college, but that wasn't a thing. I wanted to be involved in the comedy business. So I got my first job out of school. It was at CBS. Uh, and it was really, you know, it was a gigantic corporation. It was like working at the post office. I wasn't anywhere near comedy, let alone programming, let alone the product, you know. A friend of mine called me up from HBO, which was new then. HBO is kind of like Netflix is now, you know. It was like the hot, happening place to be and work and watch. And he said, hey, they're looking for somebody here at HBO to do subscriber forecasting. And you're the only guy I know who knows anything about economic modeling. Economics. Yeah. (laughs) And I said, yeah, okay. So I went over, interviewed for the job, got it. And there I am doing econometric forecasting at HBO, which believe me was the last thing I wanted to do at HBO, but it got you in 700 people. I could talk to people in the elevator who were doing comedy and programming and, 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 you know, I mean, it was an exciting place to be, even though I was nowhere near that stuff. So I did the best job I could. I didn't phone it in. I did the best job I could on the assumption that if I did a good job, somebody noticed me and maybe I move closer to programming. And that's kind of what happened. I, I spent two years doing forecasting and I got around the company and talked to a lot of people and ultimately ended up and they were putting together a new business development department. Um, and they, they had a specific new television channel they wanted to try and it failed about a week after I got there. It was a terrible idea and a terrible everything. So naturally I said, Hey, you know, we should do, maybe we should do a comedy network, but nobody really said, that sounds like a good idea. They just said, yeah, it probably wouldn't work. So I was young and I was kind of, you know, without fear for some reason, because I look back on this day, I I decided I would go and talk to the head of HBO programming about my idea for a comedy network. Now, by then, let me just make it clear. I had been thinking about a comedy network for a long time, and I had talked to a lot of people about it who, who basically raised objections. They'd say, oh, you can't, you never, nobody could ever do a comedy network. And I'd say, why not? Too expensive. So I'd go back and say, all right, now, how are we going to do this on the cheap if that's the objection? And the lesson I learned there is when you have an idea or when you're an entrepreneur, in my case, an intrapreneur, I was doing it inside a company, talk to everybody about your idea because you will get such great feedback. You know, your instinct is, hey, man, I'm going to keep this a secret because I don't want anybody to steal my idea. But that's wrong. Nobody's going to steal your idea. I mean, you know, that's, that's always a long shot. Number one, number two, you're going to end up with competition anyway. So get over it. Right. Anyway. So by that time, I, I really had a good feel for what I thought this comedy channel could be and what it could do and how it would work. And I'd done financials in my head and on paper a little bit. So I said, I'm going to go see the head of programming at HBO. Her name was Bridget. Now she was at the top of the org chart. I was at the bottom of the org chart. 
So that was a scary moment for me. But she agreed to see me. I went in and I said, Bridget, I really think HBO, you know, should do a 24-7 all-comedy network. And she said, stop right there. That's a terrible idea. And I'm going to tell you why. She spent 15 minutes telling me why it was a terrible idea. And she said things I hadn't even considered, which even at the time sounded kind of wacky. She said, no A-list comedian would be on an all-comedy network. Wow. She said, do you think Billy Crystal would be on? No. Do you think Robin Williams? She kept saying this over and over. And I talk about this in the book. And, you know, so I'm sitting there having this truckload of ice cold water poured all over my idea. You know, and she gave me a hundred reasons. Then she said, thanks for coming in. You obviously don't know anything about television. See you around the quad. And I left without having said more than like 15 words. And I felt bad. But by the time I got to the elevator, I realized she was wrong, that somebody was going to start a comedy network. And why shouldn't it be me? And that was my first experience is really kind of getting it out there. And did she get like fired or something? Did she leave? (laughs) How did so? But how did so? How did the how did your concept, your idea, how did it move forward? Did you just go to somebody else or revamp how you pitched it or? I kept working on it is a short story. And this was literally maybe a month or two later. It wasn't that far after I spoken to Bridget. <clears throat> I was I was really figuring, okay, if HBO is not going to start a comedy network, I'm either going to have to do it on my own, and that's going to cost a lot of money, or I'm going to have to take it to another place like, you know, Viacom, they had MTV, maybe they would do it, maybe Paramount would do it, maybe, you know, I just went down the list. And I was going to send my resume and attach my idea for the comedy network in the hopes that I get a job and all that kind of stuff. So I'm working on this and I'm working on my resume and everything. And and my boss's boss walks in and says, what are you working on? You don't have that much to do. And I said, "Um, yeah, I had this idea. And he says, let me see. And he takes a look at it. He goes, this is great art. He says, we ought to take this to the, I want the chairman of HBO to see this. I said, wow, the chairman of HBO. I mean, Bridget was up here. The chairman was God. You know, I mean, Michael Fuchs was the chairman of HBO. He had been named two weeks earlier by Time magazine as the most powerful man in Hollywood. Yep. This guy, if I got into the elevator with this guy by accident, I'd break into a cold sweat because he could snap his fingers and say, "Okay, whoever you are, you will never work in the business again. And that would be the end of you. You know, I mean, that's how powerful this guy was. So I said, "Okay, Larry, you know that? My boss, boss was named Larry. I said, okay, uh, yeah, that'd be great. See, Michael he goes, come on, let's go. I said, right now I got, you know, <laughs> I got nothing. I got no presentation materials. I got nothing. He said, come on, we're just going to go tell him about it. So I went in and I had to do it on the spot. And Michael said, well, you know, what do you got? He came in and he in here without an appointment. He's already a little pissed off. <laughs> this better be good. You know? <laughs> So I pitched my little heart out and I think two things got me through to the point where Michael said, wow, that sounds interesting. Let's pursue it. One was passion and people don't talk about passion in pitching a lot, but man, that, that is the most important thing. I mean, it's gotta be, it's gotta be coming out of your eyes and ears and you gotta be, you know, really excited about it. Cause Hey, if you're not excited about it, why do you expect anybody else to be excited about it? Even if you are, and you're kind of keeping it, oh, I just want to be calm about it. No, man, they want to see you jumping up and down. Second was vision. Vision is an important part of any new business because you want to think about what your new business or the business idea is going to do to change the world if it's successful in 10 years. What's the, how is that going to change things? And I said to Michael, I said, Michael, in 10 years, if this thing works, we are going to be the, the center of the comedy universe. Now, at that time, you know, National Lampoon had come and gone. Saturday Night Live was actually in a little bit of a slump. This is the, the 80s. Yeah. They, um, yeah. <laughs> and stand-up comedy was picking up some steam. So Michael saw an opportunity. And he knew he loved comedy. He, he was the guy who put the comedy specials on HBO. You know, Billy Crystal, George Carlin, all those guys, Robin Williams. So... That was that was when he said, yeah, let's explore it. He teamed me up with the head of comedy at HBO, a guy named Stu Smiley. That's his actual name. <laughs> and Stu 
had been in the comedy business for 10 years. First thing he said to me before he even said hello, what do you know about comedy? That's what he said. What do you know about comedy? And my answer was nothing. You know, I like it. I'm a fan. And, you know, I mean, basically, here's a guy who had worked in the business for 10 years, being teamed up with a guy who was in finance or something. You know, that was me. I mean, <laughs> down in the boiler room. Of the- <laughs> and right. he used to call, he used to, even after that, it was like, oh, there he is, the guy with the big idea. I mean, I was not readily accepted into the comedy club, you know, the, the group of people yeah. who, who consider themselves professional comedians or professionals in the business. And believe me, still wasn't taking me under his wing. <laughs> it wasn't like that at all. Um, but we figured it out. We put together our plan. I gave a presentation on top management, including Michael, including Bridget. And uh, we got the go ahead. We got the go ahead. Michael said, I love it. I want to launch it in six months. I was figuring I'd have two years. Yeah, right. But he wanted, it. <laughs> he wanted it up. So that's what we did. And 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 the rest is history. Uh, uh, and and with one exception, it- and you know, I, I want to point this out. I, I called, I subtitled my book, "How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor." Now, I didn't really lose my sense of humor, but I, I wanted to, I wanted to tell people that Comedy Channel was not a success right out of the box. Nor was comedy. You know, when we changed to Comedy Central, this thing, the first year was such a failure. We were panned by the press. And actually, the subtitle comes from when Michael Fuchs, three months after we launched, called me in and he said, you know, what? it took a comedy channel to get me to lose my sense of humor because we were a disaster. It was failing. I went to work every day thinking, OK, I'm going to get fired today. They're mm. going to turn off the channel today. And that's what the first year was like. Wow. When did it how did it turn around? Well, actually, interestingly. Six months after we launched, we got competition. And I mentioned that earlier, you know, whoever you are, whatever you're doing, competition will show up when it's least expected. I figured it was so hard to get people to do a comedy channel. Everybody thought it was such a stupid idea for a long time that nobody would start another one. The day after we made the announcement that we were going to, HBO was going to start a comedy channel, the very next day, MTV Networks puts out a press release, a press release saying, we are going to start a comedy channel as well. And we're calling it Ha. Now, ha. they hadn't been working on a comedy channel for any period ha. of time. <laughs> it was called Ha, the comedy network. And <laughs> I didn't think it was such a great name. But six months after we launched, they launched. And they were mostly sitcoms. And they said they were, they were comedy for people from 5 to 95. We were kind of going for edgy younger, hipper comedy, right? So right off the bat, we're doing this, but it's competition. We're competing for advertisers and audience and, and distribution and talent and, talent. and everything. Right. You know, and we're, we're killing each other. The newspapers loved it. The magazines loved it. They called it the comedy wars. It was a big deal. They couldn't wait to see us destroy each other. So six months after we launched, I get a phone call. They're merging the channels, which to me was like the worst possible news because I thought we were winning the comedy wars. I thought we had the better channel. We were starting to get an audience, starting to pick up a little steam. And you know something? Let me tell you about competition. It makes you better. It really makes you better. It, it, it helped us define who we were because that's who we weren't. And, and we had to fight harder. And we had to fight in the trenches, you know, every day. And we lost a lot of battles. We tried to get Saturday Night Live. They showed up and started bidding on it. And they won. They, got, they spent more money on it than we could even afford. And they put on Saturday Night Live. Anyway, the end of six months, they merged the channels. They took me and the head of programming from HA, a guy named Mike Klinghoffer. They threw us in a room. They said, you guys figure out what the new channel is, what the programming is, what it's going to be all about. And by the way, you can't call it hot or the comedy channel because that would mean somebody w- won the war. Right. We can't have that. So you got to rename it. So the second hardest thing after starting a comedy network was merging two comedy networks. That, to me, you know, it was almost harder. It was almost harder. And the heavy betting among the top management who had done this deal, you know, Michael and the head of Viacom, 
MTV networks, um, was that the channel was not going to make it through the year. They didn't say that at the time. Right. But they really didn't expect it to last. They thought the thing was going to be a failure. But we were hell-bent, Mike and his team and my team that I brought, we were hell-bent on making sure there was a comedy network in the world. We, had, we shared that vision, and we made it work. And then how did, you, how, how did the name Comedy Central come up? Now, that's a great story. And I do tell the story in a book because it's so funny. Um, oh, and we can, wait, wait, before we say it, there'll be a link in the show notes for people to get Art Bell's book. It's the uh, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. So we'll make sure that people have that uh, the link so they can get the book. But And you don't have to say too much because we do want people to 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 go out and get the Listen, book. There's, there's lots of stories in this book. Okay, yeah, because the name, I mean, I'm just following but you. But the, the, the name is a fascinating thing. Now, probably everybody knows that there are companies, their whole raison d'etre is that they're experts in naming things because naming things is hard. And I kept saying, man, what, what else are you going to call this thing besides comedy channel? And ha, huh, such a stupid name, but we had to do it. So we hire one of these naming uh, companies and they talk to us about the channel. We told them what our vision was. They come back with a presentation. They say, okay, we've got some ideas for what you should name the channel. First idea, big. And now there's about 15 of us in the room and we're like, big, what do you mean big? And they said, you know, it says it, you know, it's, it's bold, it's big, it's big. No, what else you got? Second, Acme. I said, Acme? <laughs> like the Roadrunner and the Coyote? Acme. That's what I said. I said, I get the connection to Roadrunner and Coyote. So at least that, unlike big, is connected to comedy. But can you get any closer to comedy? He says, well, look, you guys told us you wanted to be the center of the comedy universe. You know, you wanted to be comedy central, but that's too on the nose. We would never name it comedy oh central. Oh my God. And I said, I raised my hand. I said, why wouldn't you name it comedy central? He said, because what if you want to, you know, do other stuff? I said, what, like girls lacrosse? I mean, what are we going to do? We are a comedy network. But we walked out of there having paid zillions of dollars to these guys, not really, and said, okay, you know what we're going to do? We're going to test the names they gave us. They gave us four or five names. And the research guys were going to put it out, get a quick response on which ones they like better. Acme, Big, the other ones. And the research, head of research said, you know, we need one more name because there's not enough names here. I said, hey, you know what? Throw in Comedy Central. That came up, but they, they'd say it would never work. So the research comes back in three days. The guy walks in my office and says, 97% of the people said they want a channel called Comedy Central. The other things didn't even rate. And I said, oh, my gosh, how are we going to tell this company <laughs> that that happened? But that's what we did. We just Oh, I love anyway. that story. I yeah. love that story. Hey, you know, you got to take control of the situation, man. And acne. Comedy Central. <laughs> you know, it sounds acne, like yeah. acne. <laughs> By the way, I, you know, I tell some of these stories in the book, and I, I, I try not to um, – insult these people. They're very smart and they've done brilliant oh, no, you're, yo, before, you're during and after. But, you know, sometimes you tell these stories because that's how these things happen. And I wanted to give in my memoir and it's a memoir. So it's from my point of view. I really wanted to give a feel for what it's like to be in the middle of a business, trying to make decisions. Like when you name a channel, you're making a big decision. I mean, that's going to direct things for a long time in a lot of different ways. And I wanted to really tell what that whole process was like and make it fun and funny. I love it. I love that story. Well, and it's the same, you know, it's the same too. When so much of what your, what you, your history through this whole process, people who are starting their own business, their own coaching or their own consulting um, can relate to as well, because also number one, you, you stuck with your idea as well. You know, you said, you know what, this is, this is something that I know is, is, is going to be good. Um, you were passionate about it and you even working at the beginning, like in some department, some level in, in HBO, knowing that once you're in there, there may be somebody that you could one day talk to that get to know um, I, again, that optimism, uh, right. That you, that you had is, is really important, but also the name, you know, the branding is, is really important because you could be the best thing since sliced bread. You could be the most amazing 
consultant coach, you could fix something like that. And if people are not attracted to the, your name, your brand, then they're not going to, you know, they're not going to find out about you. That's exactly right. And you're leaving out one important group who needs a good name and a good tagline or brand or whatever you want to call it. Um, And I I tell some stories about our taglines too. Um, And that's the people who work there. You know, if you name yourself Comedy Central, you kind of took on a big responsibility there, didn't you? Because, you know, you're really aspiring to be to be something in the comedy world. And at that time, believe me, we weren't. We were, you know, we again, we I went to work every day thinking, what can we do less of that's not working? What can we do more of that's working? Because we were hanging by our fingernails for the longest time after the merger, too trying to determine who we were, what we are. I tell the story of one of the taglines that we took on early on, um, the first one, and it was, um, uh, we're all going to die, watch Comedy Central. And and we love that tagline. We love that tagline. Everybody, and the reason we love that tagline is because, like I asked my father what he thought of it is, he said, it's horrible, you can't say that. And then I asked my younger brother, who was like 22, and he said, that's the funniest thing I ever heard. And that's what we wanted. We wanted to separate out the people who weren't going to like the channel. We wanted those young, you know, we wanted that, you know, 18 to 34 cohort. And that's, that's what you got to do. You got to be aspirational in your name, aspirational in how you talk about yourself, aspirational in your taglines. And all of that is very important, as important as our programming. And, and focus on your audience, right? Focus on oh, your yeah. key audience. If you're yeah. if your key clientele uh, or customers, um, if you want to draw in a particular demographic, then then target that demographic, right? You know, like uh, for me, majority of my clients are women that are in you know 40, 50, 60 even. So in that that 40 to 60, and that's usually women that at that point, maybe if they've had kids, they've, the, the, they've gone to, you know, university, they're, they're on their way and they have more um, disposable income at that time. But um, also that's my, that's my strong connection with, with women. So that's my audience. Um, but when you started, you know, when you, when you started this whole thing, um that vision of knowing who you want to attract and being really good at it. Um, that's, that's where all the success starts rolling in. Right. It does. Well, I know there was a lot, there was, there was some pitfalls in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, listen, even from the beginning and I know research audience research sometimes gets a bad name. It's portrayed on television as kind of goofy focus groups and all that kind of stuff. You gotta, you gotta know your audience because you are not whoever you are, certainly in television. You are not your audience. It's just, it doesn't work out that way because it's a big country and you got to know all about what those people are thinking about comedy, about television, how they use it, what they, what they think about comedy, what it means for them in their lives. We had to learn all of that stuff from scratch. We had to, we had to find out. I loved focus groups because people would put into words things that we couldn't figure out how to describe, you know? So Know your know the group you're trying to sell to is so important. Research, research, research. I used to say, you know, running a television channel without doing research is like flying a plane with a blindfold on. You know, it's just how can you do it? Right. Well, you got to get that. You do have to get that feedback. And I think when I lived in LA, I I was in part of a couple different focus groups. They they call you into the studio and you watch some little thing and then you fill out the cards and and you have lunch or something. I don't know. They it was it was a nice experience. But um, but yeah, you're right because you have to get that feedback. They'll also notice things. They'll also see something. They'll go. They'll go. Wait a second. In that first scene. They're wearing, you know, this thing. And then, and then I noticed, you know, they, they'll pick up on stuff that you will never see. Cause also just like people who have their own business, sometimes we're, we're too, we're too deep inside it that we need that aerial shot or, you know, that drone shot of someone else looking in and going, absolutely you know, that, but that, not only that, yeah, you want to be able to describe your consumer, your audience, your target audience you know, down to the minutest detail, you really want to know what that person or people, what those people are like, what their lifestyle is like, what, what 
your product is going to do for them, how it's going to affect their lives or change their lives. You got to know all that. You can't just make it up. You can't make it up. So it's very, very important. Very important. And also, um, I just like the tip of, you know what, using humor. I Look at all, like when you look at some of the influencers as well that are on social media, so much of it is based on humor. Celeste Barber here in Australia. I mean, it, her little comparisons, you know, showing um, a supermodel doing something weird and then her reenactment of it. Um, and it's brilliant. It's humor gets us through the tough times. Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. look way back when they when they did the silent films and uh, Charlie Chaplin and um, the other uh, gentleman. Who Buster, did, Keaton. Buster Keaton. Buster um, Keaton. The audience was going through freaking hell. There was so much, uh, I mean, economic disparity and um, and trouble. And they went to the cinema to get relief, right. to to laugh and to forget about their problems for, for a moment. And throughout um, throughout history, that's what we've done. We did going to the cabarets, going to vaudeville, going to the silent movies, and then, you know, going now to, um, well, going to some concerts and things, but then having Comedy Central um, or Saturday Night Live come into our homes and give us a little bit of a break yeah, from I reality. Know, no, it's very important. One thing that you mentioned, though, that I want to circle back to was my optimism. And mm-hmm. if you said to my wife, boy, your husband, well, he must have been so optimistic. She would start laughing like hysterically because I am not optimistic by nature. But, you know, you have to push through. And one of the ways I push through, people say, how'd you get get through it? You look for signs of success, little tiny signs of success, anything. And you grab onto that and you hold onto it like crazy. The first sign of success that came into us was Mystery Science Theater 3000. You know that show? It came to us before we launched Comedy Channel. We got an envelope in the mail. There was a tape and there was a (laughs) note. We hear you guys are starting a comedy channel. Is this something that you would be interested in? So we put in the thing and it's, of course, brilliant. They had been producing Mystery Science Theater 3000 at a, a tiny station in Minneapolis. We flew out there the next day. And and I held on to that. Not only did we make it our first kind of hit, but you know, I held on to the fact that if we're gonna be a comedy network, great comedy's gotta come to us. We can't always we can't be everywhere. Yes. And yes. there it was. There was the first example of great comedy that would not have gone on HBO or CBS or NBC or you know, any of the channels. Thank goodness we were there. That's how people said it. Thank, thankfully, you were there to put on MST 3000 and ultimately South Park and The Daily Show and Chris Rock, you know, all of those things. They needed a home. And that's what kept me going. Oh, I didn't even I forgot about South Park. Holy moly. You know how many people that that uh, I mean, the lives that people have changed, that the lives that have changed due to Comedy Central. <laughs> yeah. And I am not going to take credit for South Park. I was on my way. I was leaving at the time South Park was coming in. So, and the reason I was leaving that, was- there was that whole, because also you, it, the, the thing about um, Comedy Central and a, and, a, and a channel dedicated to comedy was that it opened it up. So it wasn't just about comedy movies like the National Lampoon type things um, or stand up comic routines, right? Which, you know, a concert and it's, and it, you, you film it, you brought in animation and, that's a whole that opened up a whole big industry. And I remember there was a time where everyone was trying to get that, you know, um, that next uh, animated comedy out, you know, from South Park to uh, Family Guy. People were throwing out. I, I even got approached to do I wrote through a cartoon character uh, for America Online way, way back. And they were talking about taking the cartoon character and making it into a animated Ooh. comedy thing. It was, it was not the right time and too much craziness, but it was that hot time. It was that, that moment of we need to create, we need to create. Um, and it started a whole cottage industry. I mean, the animated comedies uh, just blew up. Yeah. Right. No, it's uh, it was, it was comedy central and comedy channel, especially the early days. I mentioned I did a, podcast, you know, talking to some of the people who were there in the early days. 
for some of those people, it was their first job in comedy and that or in entertainment. It was an, ex- an explosion of creativity for everybody who was there, even though we weren't, you know, a success out of the, out of, out of the box. It was an explosion of creativity. People could do what they want. And that's really what, you know, that was my vision. That was my hope for Comedy Central, that it would be a place where people could try things and do crazy things and, and really innovate in comedy. And I think it's, it's lived up to that. What a, beautiful, what a beautiful way to work to, to, to be able to be as creative as your mind can, can, can handle and to see what works and to start something and to see it grow. Um, it's, that's a, a beautiful feel. And, and I'm applying that to all, to our entrepreneurs right now as well, who are starting their, their own coaching business. Um, I hope, I hope uh, wonderful listeners and viewers on, on YouTube got something out of the show. I know I did. I'm inspired. Um, I'm also going to tap into, because you know what, because when I, when I work with people, the comment that they get is of course, you know, oh my goodness, I learned so much about podcasting or radio or uh, creating a YouTube channel, but what they say, and this is the biggest compliment to me is how, how much fun they've had, how enjoyable it was. And that I was, you know, if they say that I was funny or something like that, great, but that they had fun. And I'm going to do that in my, I'm putting more of that out there because um, I'm inspired by you, Art Bell. I'm going to, oh, I'm going to do a little bit more of that and get I'm it out glad. there because the seriousness, the, you know, the whole thing that the whole pitch and sales thing. Um, yeah, no, I'm going to, um, I'm going to embrace my inner comedian a little bit. more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure so, it'll work. Um, you are welcome back anytime on Out of the Box. Oh, thank you. I'd love to come back. Thank I you. I loved our conversation. And I uh, I want everybody to check out uh, the book by my guest today, Art Bell. It is called Constant Comedy. This is a memoir from Art Bell, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. And if you can check it out. We'll have a link in the show notes so you can check out that book. And if you want um, more information about art, you can go to artbellwriter.com. That's artbellwriter.com. I'll put the link to his website as well in the show notes. And as always, I want to remind you to think outside of that damn box. For more information about the podcast, go to outoftheboxwithchristine.com. For more information on me, go to christineblasdale.com. Until next time, have a beautiful day, stay safe, and love each other.